Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this New World Coronavirus Order, we'll be doing all of church online. But we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this. We've seen it all before and will, we know this for sure, work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. Hey, welcome to our living room, the Flint living room, and the first of our bread coronavirus videos. No expense has been spared. We're using an unbranded iPhone microphone and we have an iPhone gaffer taped to the back of a laptop to record this for your pleasure. But anyway, I want to start by acknowledging that it's very natural at these sorts of times for people to be asking questions such as, does God really care about the world currently? What does he think about it? It's very difficult to know how to pray when we're not totally sure where God is in all of this. And so I want to try and address some of those questions this morning. Now, hopefully it goes without saying, but perhaps it's worth reiterating. God does not always get what he wants. The biblical witness is pretty clear. The universe is fundamentally corrupted. People don't work as they should, and the world doesn't work as it should. As Paul puts it, the whole of creation, including humanity, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, it will not last forever. There will come a time when everything is made right. And in the meantime, we can and we do taste something of heaven now, thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. There is forgiveness. There is healing. There is uh, joy and redemption here and now for all those who look to him. But until Jesus does return, God does not always get what he wants. Bad things happen, have happened, and will continue to happen. It is not his plan for the world, but that does not mean that God is surprised by coronavirus, and so neither should we be. Nor does it mean, though, that he is inactive, uncaring, unable to use this situation for good. Indeed, he promises to use everything, good, bad, and ugly, for good and his glory. So, with that in mind, I want to talk briefly about a few ways in which we can see God at work in the midst of what looks increasingly like a global disaster, which within our living memory and our experience is probably on an unprecedented scale and scope. And I want to do that by considering the famous story of when Jesus' disciples are looking disaster in the face on the Sea of Galilee as a storm whips up and they fear for their lives. So this is Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, 
so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, the episode is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and in each it occurs near the beginning of Jesus' ministry after the main part of his ethical teaching and soon after he's performed some miraculous healings. So news about him has spread rapidly and now Jesus is attracting huge crowds of people. So much so that, as Mark points out at the beginning of the chapter, as Jesus began to teach by the lake, the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat, it out, and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And so it's not surprising, having given out as he has in teaching and healing and no doubt being somewhat physically and emotionally overwhelmed by the sheer number of people wanting to see him, that Jesus, totally exhausted, retreats with his disciples and falls asleep in their boat as they cross to the other side of the lake. But he's not asleep for long before he's confronted by the fear of his disciples and the threat of shipwreck. But let me just say from the outset, the lesson here is not as much as we might want it to be, if we could just wake Jesus up from his early evening celestial nap, he'd miraculously solve all our problems, coronavirus included. It is a little bit more nuanced than that, and why that is, I will want to come to at the end. But let's consider to start with how the disciples behave, because I'm sure we can identify with them in a number of ways. Firstly, what the threat of shipwreck does, what the threat of any chaotic, disastrous, possible crisis does to all of us is it shines a light on our equality. Storms are no respecters of position, power, privilege, wealth or any other distinctions that humans create and neither is coronavirus. It does not observe national borders or ethnic boundaries. At various points throughout the Gospels, the disciples are individualised, as I'm sure you will be aware. Each one has a name, we know who they are, they have personalities, they respond and they interact with Jesus in their own unique ways. But here, faced with the threat of death throughout, they are always one homogenous whole, the disciples. They react together as one, they ask questions together as one, they are speaking as one and they are spoken to as one, the disciples. Because this is what crises do. They level the playing field. They expose, actually, the fact that we are all the same. We are all in this together. They shine a light on humankind's equality. Consider any sort of zombie movie or disaster movie, TV series, something like that. The, the Walking Dead being a classic example. The usual setup is you have an unlikely group of people who are disparate and they sort of separate themselves off trying to defeat whatever threat is coming against them and they react individualistically only to find that after a few of them have been picked off what is paramount is that they actually overcome their differences treat one another as they actually are of equal value and then they might have the best chance of survival so then coronavirus is no foreign virus this is not a chinese problem it is our problem humanity's problem in the same way that HIV is our problem, cancer is our problem, global warming, racism, selfishness, 
and anything else which pulls at the fabric of God's plan for the world, i.e. oneness with him, his creation, and each other, they are all our problem. So particularly, as we experience enforced physical and social isolation, let's not be tempted to retreat into our various factions. Now, what the world, I think, senses is that at this time, this sort of time of crisis, this is when we actually do need to come together as a human race and put one another first. Now, this is obviously highly laudable, and given so much of the division that is wrecking our country and other countries around the world, it's something which is refreshing to see. But, and without wanting to be a cynic or to pour water in, onto any of this, I think we should remain in view of the fact that all human attempts to create oneness throughout history will always fall down without the power of Jesus behind them. Not, of course, because those who follow Jesus are in some way special or chosen, in fact, quite the opposite. In the same way that Corona is no respecter of human distinctions, neither actually is Jesus. He chooses everyone on the cross, and rather, it is actually only because of him and in his body on the cross that the dividing walls of hostility and otherness are torn down. So, as I speak to bread as a church, as to us, our people, we've experienced this adoption, his forgiveness, his unconditional love, so let us be people who treat everyone made in the image of God with the same unashamed kindness. We are all in exactly the same boat. And this is what the coronavirus has shed light on, our actual shared equality. And secondly, it sheds light on our fragility. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Verse 40, he said this to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? What's clear is the disciples are vulnerable and they are scared. Now, these are seasoned fishermen we're talking about. And as verse 36 says, they are not alone. There are other boats with them, again, presumably manned by seasoned fishermen. This is not novices taking a solitary, ill-prepared cruise on unfamiliar waters. These men would have lived their whole lives, day in, day out, on the Sea of Galilee, and know all its currents and characteristics, and they would have had no doubt experienced various storms in their time on the sea. So for them to behave so afraid here suggests that this is not a normal occurrence. This is a squall of such magnitude that it has, have, has every one of them expecting the worst, thinking they're going to die. Now, for most of us, not all of us, of course, but for most of us, the reality is that for much of our lives, we never even have to think about our vulnerability. And after a while, having done so much not thinking about our vulnerability, we can even become, uh, we can even, sorry, we can even think that we are sort of untouchable that we're always going to be fine. And so when something potentially disastrous comes out of the blue at us, it knocks us sideways. Because what we're confronted by is something that is, though it's always been there, we just haven't actually seen it. And what we are confronted by is our weakness, all of us, that actually, despite appearances, despite what we might tell ourselves, we are fragile and vulnerable beings. And we're not really in control of our lives as much as we might believe we are. 
We may have our plans for our lives and our seasonally chosen outfits, and we've thought long and hard about which shoes go with which trousers and whether we're going to go on vacation to Marfa or Austin because, you know, which one would be better at Instagram. And some of us have investment plans, or at least we have Pinterest boards of the houses that we will probably never be able to afford and what they're going to look like because, you know, just in case, just in case. But we think we're in control, but we're really not. We are vulnerable. It is what it is to be a human being. The prophet Isaiah put it like this. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. We're not in control. We're in need. But actually, can I suggest that this is great news? To be reminded of our human fragility in the most stark ways. Because the reality is, it's always been there, and it always will be. And so in times like these, when we see ourselves for what we actually are, in need of help, this is a good thing. And the end of that verse from Isaiah is the wonderful kicker. The hope-infused kicker. All people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. We are weak, but he is not. He never, ever fails. He endures forever. So let us be completely honest with ourselves about what corona has made us feel. Let us be honest with our vulnerability and weakness. If we are scared, if we are anxious, let's acknowledge it. If we're angry or lonely or sad, let us acknowledge all of those things. These are completely normal reactions. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to feel any of these things. That was an email that just came in. But unless we acknowledge them and give them to him, there's no way he can actually take them from us. It's Pinterest, just so you know. It's when we can be honest with ourselves, with our actual feelings, with our weakness and vulnerability, when we can let the appearance of being all fine slip for a moment and give it over to him, that he can bring his power and he can bring his comfort and warmth to us, and he can look after us. It's what he's for. Thirdly, it shines a light on our focus. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote about where our trust really lies. He says this, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound, as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Then, wouldn't you discover how much you really trusted it? Now, notice that the heart of the disciples' question is actually quite interesting. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They don't say, teacher, we're going to drown. They don't say, help. They say, don't you care? Do you not care about us? They're obviously fearful for their lives, but the heart of their concern is, can Jesus, can this man be trusted? Is he for real? Now, we say, don't we, that we trust God. We've, it's very easy to say, but do we really? Now, of course, our motives are always mixed. Even the most saintly of us will never fully trust ourselves to God as much as we might like to believe we do. We trust some of ourselves to him and some of them to our families and our friends and our worries and a fair bit actually we trust to ourselves. 
But there's nothing like a crisis to expose the reality of where our trust really lies. Now, as far as I can tell, in this nation at this time, our trust as a nation seems to lie squarely in the cavernous heart of Costco. Not a great place to put your trust. It is hell in there. Now, Hannah and I are in the process of buying a house in LA, which is both exciting and terrifying in equal measure. And it's meant, of course, moving uh, a deposit over from the UK to the US. And it's basically all our earthly savings. And we have to transfer it from pounds to dollars to put down the deposit on this house. Now, you may be aware, if you've watched a little bit of the news recently, that there is a little bit of turmoil surrounding the global markets just in the last few weeks as we're trying to transfer all this massive load of cash. And this has meant big fluctuations in exchange rate. I've found myself literally watching a graph on a computer which refreshes every second to see the tiny little increments of change in exchange rates thinking, oh, if we transfer it now, we'll get a little bit more money or we'll get a lot less money or those sorts of things. And I will f watch it for hours. I find it mesmerizing. Where's my trust? Not in God. It's in a bank account. Now, of course, there is nothing ungodly about being concerned about and taking responsibility for our lives and the lives of other people that we come across, particularly those we love and know. In fact, it is a very godly thing to do, to be caring about people right now especially. But when something, even something good, becomes the thing we live for, there will be trouble in the end. Because none of these things, be they people, or bank accounts, or security, or bricks and mortar, or whatever, will be able to be fully able to define us because they are not powerful enough. Only he can, and we are lost without him. So if you have found your trust exposed to be directed towards things that are not of him, why don't you let him know? And why don't you try and, in your best, give him your fears and worries, the things that you are directing your trust towards, give them to him and allow him to be the one who defines who you are. And finally, it shines a light on our view of God. This is probably the most important point. The mystery of the incarnation, of God becoming man in the person of Jesus, will always be difficult for us to fully comprehend. And it's why people tend to emphasise one side of Jesus' identity over the other. Those probably with a more conservative mindset will be drawn to his divinity. He is the resurrected Lord, the ruler and saviour of the universe. He holds the whole world in his hand. He's in control and has miraculous power to change history. Those probably with a more liberal mindset will be drawn more to his humanity. He is compassionate and tender. He befriends the needy and he heals the sick and he stands up for injustice and he defends the weak. Now, it's my belief that actually the side of Jesus with which we are more comfortable, be it either his divinity or his humanity, will have influenced actually how we've responded to the current corona crisis. For those of us more comfortable with Jesus' divinity, I think our likely response is to say things like, this isn't that much of a big deal. It's going to be okay. Jesus is in control. We can pray to him. And even, perhaps, we're all going to die someday. So it doesn't really matter. Heaven can't come soon enough, in fact. And why don't other people have just more faith? Trust in the Lord. It's all going to be okay. Now, I would say that this is probably the side of things that I land on. Hannah, my wife, on the other hand, 
is on the other side of things. Because for those of us more comfortable with Jesus' humanity, like her, I think our likely response will be, well, this is we are, where we are his hands and feet, caring for the sick, where we embody his compassion, where we spread his love. This is not a time to be removed or isolated or blasé. This is a time to be present and to stand up for justice and to look after the most vulnerable, to be compassionate and to be involved. Now, whilst, of course, it is understandable for many reasons why we would gravitate to one or other aspect of Jesus' nature, it is not healthy to do so. He is not one or the other. He is both and forever and always and. For all time, he is both divine and human. To treat him as anything but is to do him, and actually, most importantly, our experience of him, scant justice. We in the world need him to be both and, now more than ever, and the wonderful truth is, he actually is. And in this story that we've been looking at, we see the two so strikingly. His divine potency is actually somewhat lost, both in translation and in our over-familiarity with the story. But if we can see it afresh, let me just say that when he stands up and commands the waves, what we may have in our minds is some sort of superhero-style posturing and bellowing voice, but this couldn't actually be further from the sense in the Greek. The words translated in verse 39, quiet, be still, are actually better translated, shut up, and stay shut up. There's nonchalance in his voice. This is not difficult for Jesus. Oh, you've woken me up to calm the storm, and what he says is, okay, shut up. It's off the cuff. It's dismissive. It's a little bit arrogant. Good old Jesus being a bit arrogant. I think he deserves to be. And not only does the wind die down, but the waves too. They become completely calm. The sense here is instantaneous. One moment, ten foot high waves crashing over the sides of the boat, almost swamping it. The next, the whole sea is like glass, completely still and flat. Now, in first century Jewish thought, the sea was not just the sea. It was actually representative of all that is chaotic and evil about the universe. It is the formless deep in which Leviathan lives, this sort of personification of everything wrong and evil and destructive about the world. So when Jesus calms it in an instant from 10-foot-high waves to completely still glass-like ice rink, what he is is showing that he rules not just over the physical world, but the whole spiritual realm, the whole universe, the whole of everything. And the true force, of course, of Jesus' mighty power is seen in his disciples' response. They were afraid before, but now they're absolutely terrified. Who is this, they say? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's good now and again to be reminded of the terrifying power of God. Now, that is not to say we should ever, ever be scared of him. We're not supposed to be scared of God. He is good and he loves us. Do not fear him. He is the one who has compassion on his children. And his hand of kindness is towards us. But his power is, in the truest sense, awesome. It requires the response of awe and wonder. And it's good to be reminded of it because it's reassuring to know that the God we worship actually can do extraordinary things. Does coronavirus worry him? Not one bit. 
are our lives hidden with him in his mighty right hand, protected and held for for eternity? Yes, they are, because he is the king of the universe and his power cannot be held back. So let us not lose sight of his awesomeness. It will help us as we pray and it helps us keep in perspective who we are with him and his rule over the world. Let us not lose sight of that and let us not also, though, lose sight of his humanity and his humility and his kindness. How physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted do you have to be to stay asleep in a boat which is in the middle of a squall and about to capsize? This is the reality of Jesus' humanity. He is one of us, like us. He knows our suffering. He knows what it is to be completely spent and done with life, of just needing to collapse and hunker down and sleep. He lived our lives. He is fully human. He spent time with the crowds. He's compassionately healed the sick. He's preached good news. And he is one with us. But actually his deep care, his identification with a world in need, is seen in this story no more strikingly than in what may at first glance seem like actually the opposite, quite an odd place. It's seen actually best in his response to the disciples after having calmed the storm. As I said, it appears like it's the opposite, not loving kindness, but dismissive indifference. He says, verse, uh, what is it, verse... 39, I haven't got it, whatever. Uh, but he says 11 words. No empathetic, empathetic response. No, is everyone okay? How are we all doing? Instead, simply this. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Let me explain. The heart of the disciples' concern displayed in their question to Jesus is, as we saw earlier, this. Don't you care? Jesus' response, though, is not, let me show you how much I care, I'll calm the storm for you. Rather, it's, do you still not believe me? After all you've seen, after everything just today that I've been doing, teaching and healing the sick, but more importantly, do you not still believe in me? Just look at who I am. I'm your God, but I've become one like you. I've become one of you. What more, what more could I do to show you that I care? Not just for you, but for the whole of humanity. And the depth of my care will be seen once and for all in the greatest storm of all, Calvary, where I will battle with all of the elements of the universe for you and for the world. Of course I care, Jesus is saying. I'm here. It's the whole point. The whole shebang right here with you. So we do not need to be afraid because he is with us. We are all equal in the sight of God and he has chosen us all for himself if we are to respond to him. It's for us simply to receive him again, to put our trust in him again and to pray to the God of the universe who can change the world and to pray to the one who comes close to us in our suffering, who cares more than we will ever, ever understand, who chooses to use us to show his care to the world, to pray for the sick, to heal the sick in his power, 
to bring his justice and goodness to the world. And that's really our role for all of time, but particularly now. Amen. Oh,